This is Moses from the fifth chapter of Deuteronomy uh, giving the people the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an image of anything that is in the heaven above or on the earth below. You shall not bow down and worship them. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing kindness and love to the hundredth generation of those who love me. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. You shall uh, keep the Sabbath, uh, observe the Sabbath day, and keep it holy. Six days you shall do all your work, and the seventh shall be a Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall do no work, neither you, your son, nor your daughter, your male or female servants, your ox, your donkey, any of your animals, nor the foreigner who lives among you. Your female and male servants shall rest as you do. I am the Lord your God. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and I brought you out with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand. Uh, keep this commandment that I ask you to observe this day. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that I'm giving you and that it will go well for you. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not uh, commit adultery. You shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Neither shall you set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, male or female servant, ox, donkey, or any of his animals or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. You probably recognize those as what we call the Ten Commandments. A recent survey of Christians in North America found out that most Christians cannot name all ten of the commandments. But even if we can't name them all ten under pressure, we're fairly familiar with them. But sometimes familiarity uh, makes it difficult for us to see the brilliance of what God is giving us in the Ten Commandments. So I thought this morning we'd take a closer look. One of the things I would like for you to see is that many scholars divide the Ten Commandments into two parts. They see the first through third commandments as having to do with the love of God. Uh, so having no other gods and, and not um, making a graven image and not misusing God's name has to do with love of God. And the fifth through tenth commandments have to do with love of neighbor. And starting with uh, honoring your father and your mother going all the way through you shall not uh, covet your neighbor's wife. And so we see the, the great commandment, love God, love neighbor, reflected in the Ten Commandments. But the fourth one, say scholars, can be a bridge that unites love of God and love of neighbor. Others see it as a hinge on which all the first three and the last six hang uh, either side. And so they see the significance of the commandment, keep the Sabbath day, uh, or observe the Sabbath day, and keep it holy. Uh, some years ago, one of the great rabbis of the 20th century, Abraham Joshua Heschel, was uh, lecturing at Austin Seminary to Presbyterian students. 
And in the lecture, he asked this question, which of the Ten Commandments is the greatest or most important? And they uh, called out answers, most of them saying, well, no other gods. Uh, And it's interesting to note that a lot of Jews say the first commandment is not no other gods, but the first commandment is I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. And if you get that one right, you'll get all the other commandments uh, and live by them. But Heschel's argument was this. He said that the greatest commandment is observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. And he argued that those who keep the Sabbath are more likely to keep the other nine commandments. What I wanted to do, though, is take a closer look at two of the commandments because I noticed they had something in common. Two of the Ten Commandments are stated positively. The other eight are are saying you shall not or do not. But the two positive commandments are to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy and to honor your father and mother. And I wondered if there might be anything in the two of them together that God is saying. And then I found out that in Leviticus 19.3, Moses, in giving the law again to the people, puts these two commandments together, reverses the order this time, and says to the people, respect your mother and father and honor the Sabbath. And so the two of them go together. So I started wondering... What is it about the fourth and fifth commandments together? What What is God saying? What might God be doing? So to explore that with you for a few moments this morning, let's look at each of those commandments separately. First, the fourth commandment, observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. One thing to note is that the word Sabbath, you may know, simply means in Hebrew, quit it or stop it. And so it had to do with the work stoppage. While the world around you was working seven days a week and going at it, trying to stay productive, God's people were one day a week to call time out and to celebrate God and to celebrate rest and the life that God had given them. And keep it holy. Holy just means set apart. In other words, treat this day in a way different than you treat the other days. Stop your work. Make this day different. One of the things that um, it was to do was to be, as one rabbinical scholar called it, an act of enchantment or an act that would interest the rest of the world when they noticed that the Hebrews could take a day off and still function, that the Hebrews could take a day off and the world would keep spinning, that the other civilizations, whether they be Egypt or the Canaanites or uh, later the Assyrians or Babylonians, would be drawn to the Lord their God. It was to be an act, he said, of enchantment. Another commentator called it an act of resistance. It was an act of protest. It was an act that said, I am more than my job. I am more than what I bring home or more than what I put on the table. I have a value apart from my work. Now, there's a couple of things I think that we should note about the fourth commandment. And the first is this. The fourth commandment did not say to the Jews, go to church on this day. Uh, Their Sabbath observances were worship services held in the home on Friday evening. But what is interesting, it did say, keep it holy, be separate, be different than the rest of the world, and that will be a witness. And so in our day, where most everybody stops work on Sunday and a lot stop work on Saturday or Sunday, our uh, coming to worship on this day becomes that act of witness. Uh, When we stay home... Uh, we are like the rest of, uh, of the world, or at least in North America. Uh, statistics today have as, as, uh, as few as maybe 20% of Americans in a synagogue or in a, in a, a Christian sanctuary on, uh, on a normal weekend. 
So the act of resistance and the act of witness really is when you, with your extra hour of sleep, you got up out of bed and made your way here um, today. The other thing is to say that uh, one commentator said of the Ten Commandments, they are non-negotiable, but they are endlessly negotiated. And what that means is these ten things are clear that God wants us to do them. But what they look like in everyday life is a matter of praying and and studying the Scripture and, and, uh, and sharing with one another and listening to God's voice. What does it mean not to murder? Does that include war? Does it include self-defense? There were all sorts of negotiations. And as one who works every Christian Sabbath, I have to tell you, I have to engage in negotiation uh, with, with God about what my Sabbath will be. So that's important to know. Uh, the fifth commandment was to uh, honor your father and your mother. Now, what is interesting is I still have one child at home, so I love the interpretation that this is for children to clean up their room when I tell them to do it, that it's about obeying your parents. But in actuality, most experts agree this has very little to do with what we do as children when we're young. It has everything to do with what we do with our parents when we are adults and they are older uh, adults. The word honor shows up in marriage contracts in the ancient Near East, and honor always means in those contracts, take care of. So that the interpretation is take care of your parents. Uh, Rashi, a Jewish commentator on what does it mean, the fifth commandment, says this. It means that you are to give your parents food and drink. You're to clothe them. You are to put their shoes on. You are to accompany them when they come in, and you are to accompany them when they go out. It's about a level of care for those who may not be as able to care for themselves anymore. That's what the fifth commandment is about. So what do the fourth and fifth commandment have in common? It seems to me, uh, after I scratched my head for a while, that what they had in common is they had to do with work or the lack thereof. That God values people independent of their productivity. And so that they can take a day off and celebrate God, and that's okay. Or they can reach a point in their life where they're no longer contributing to the gross national product or to the community or giving us anything tangible, and that's okay. They are valued nonetheless. When you're talking about the fourth and fifth commandment and loving your neighbor, what you're saying is you love your neighbor whether you can get anything out of them or not. Whether they contribute currently to your well-being or not, you love them anyway. The New Testament points out that which is pretty obvious, that this is the first of the commandments that has a promise attached. God says, honor your father and your mother, and you'll live long in the land I'm giving you, and it'll go well for you. Well, what could that promise mean? Well, I was reading a commentator from early in the 20th century. His name is, um, early in the 20th century, his name is Benno Jacob. Jewish rabbi, lived in Germany. And uh, stayed in Germany, even when the Nazis came to power. And uh, until the very last minute, he had to escape. And he went to London, England, and got there in time uh, for uh, the Blitz, for, for all the bombing. It uh, destroyed uh, the apartment in which he's living and most of the books that he had brought with him from Germany. But he was still working on his commentary in the book of Exodus. And this is what he says about the Fifth Commandment. He said, how can we expect that our society will survive? When we, as parents, do not take care of our parents, how can we expect that our children will care for us? And he said, eventually, society will come unhinged, unwound when we live like that. 
And he noted that when we only value people for what they can do, what, uh, that's not a sure foundation for community. And he would know because he had watched Nazi Germany devalue a class of people after class of people after class of people and just take them off the scene and put them in concentration camps because they did not or could not produce what those in power wanted. Reminds me of the famous quote from the Lutheran pastor Martin Lemoler in 1946. He had spent three years in the concentration camps of Nazi Germany and had survived. But this is what he said afterward about his time as a Lutheran pastor. He said, he said, when the Nazis came for the communists, I wasn't a communist, so I didn't speak up. He said, when they came and took away the trade unionists, I wasn't a trade unionist, so I didn't speak up. When they came and took away the Jews to prison... I wasn't a Jew, so I didn't speak up. And then you'll recall, he said, and finally when they came for me, there was no one left to speak up. Who speaks up in, in a world for those who can no longer produce or can't give us uh, what we need in, in life or contribute to our well-being? Who will defend them? Who will speak up for them? And the answer in the Ten Commandments is, the people of God will do this. They will not love only on the basis of what they can get from other people. And what does that say about loving God? That was the real light bulb for me this week. If we're supposed to love other people regardless of whether they give anything to us or not at the moment, are we supposed to extend God the same sort of love? What if God's not giving us what we want at the moment? What if God hasn't come through in an important area of our life the way we wanted God to come through? Do we not love God then? How are we to treat and think of God? If we're to love neighbors regardless of what they give us, what about God? See the article in the paper this week about the two survivors of the concentration camp in Poland at Treblinka? The Nazis wiped out any trace of Treblinka uh, to try to cover up what they had done. But there, there were a couple of men who escaped, ended up in Israel, and uh, they were talking about it uh, this past week in an interview, and one of them said, I got out of that concentration camp by luck. He said, it wasn't God. He said, God was on vacation. And I thought, really? Really? And I wondered about his relationship with God, and I wonder if that meant that he no longer believed in God or cared about God or worshipped God. Then I remembered that great story from Elie Wiesel who talks about the time in the concentration camp when the rabbis decided to put God on trial for all the things that had happened to the Jews uh, through the ages up into the Holocaust. And the prosecutor wa waved a powerful case about the absence of God. And the defense tried, as they might, to defend God, but clearly they were losing. But before the rabbi in charge would close the case and pronounce a judgment, he stopped and he said, well, gentlemen, we'll have to finish this later. Right now it's time for our prayers. And they all got up to worship God. Can you love God even when God hasn't answered all of your prayers? My colleague Scott Hare told me a story of a rabbi, and it's not a historically true story, but there's truth in it. The story is that a childless couple came to this rabbi and they said, Rabbi, will you pray for us to have a child? And he was so moved by the plight of the couple that he said, I tell you, by this time next year, you will have a child, which is 
scriptural in some ways. And then after the, the couple left, very excited, he realized he'd made a mistake. He prayed to God and he said, God, forgive me. I forgot to ask whether it was your will for this couple to have a child. And God said to the rabbi, you are right to ask my forgiveness, for it was not my will for this couple to have a child. But since you have promised it to them, I will give them a child. But as for you, your punishment is you will have no part in my eternal kingdom. And suddenly the rabbi got up, joyfully started jumping around and dancing. And God said to the rabbi, what are you doing? And he said, oh, Lord, he said, all my life I've been afraid that I would only love you because of what you could do for me. He said, now, now I know that I can love you just for who you are. Can we love our neighbor regardless of what our neighbor does for us? Can we love God regardless of what God might do for us? The Ten Commandments call us to do so.